Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4. In one of Helen Steele's uh, recent uh, letters home, she sent a little bookmark prayer card. Helen Steele, for those of you that don't know, is our missionary in Greece, in, uh, outside of Athens. And she is serving at the place written right here on this card. I should have had Tim take a picture and put it up for you, but it's all Greek to me. Uh, <laughs> And when I look at this, I'm reminded I should have studied Greek harder when I was in college. (laughs) Even so, I can make out a few words. It says, uh, please help by praying for the, uh, what I think is Evangelical Bible Institute. Um, I'm going to have to look up that one word to make sure. The the, the Greek of the New Testament era that we study at Bible college or seminary is called Koine Greek. That is a, a name for the type of Greek. And of course, modern Greek has changed over 2,000 years, so it's not exactly the same, but that's not the real reason I can't read it. I just didn't study that hard. <laughs> it says it is biblical and practical instruction in the Word of God, so I, I felt pretty good that I was able to do that much. My Greek professor was a, a fine, godly man, but he was very gentle and very soft-spoken, and when it was before a test, he'd say, well... Well, now you, you might want to look at this, and, and, and you might want to study that, and that would be the same as some other teacher screaming at the top of his lungs, this will be on the test. <laughs> he was very gently telling us how we could succeed as the test came. One of the biggest tests you will ever take in your life is living in a family. It is. It is a test of your godliness. It is a test of your faith, a test of your Christianity. And you didn't know it when you got married. You were like the couple that we went and saw get married on Friday night. They're just all gaga for each other like young couples are supposed to be. And I doubt they're getting married thinking, I'm about to be challenged more greatly than I ever have in my life. They just think it's going to be wedded bliss from here on. And you know there should be a fair amount of bliss, but when you get in relationship with another person in the same house and in the same life, and then some other little persons come along, God uses that to stretch you. That's God's method of growing up, growing us up. He brings challenging circumstances. The great news is, just like my Greek professor, God has already said, here is how to succeed. It's not a mystery. It's not unknowable. It's not undoable. God has told us in the Word. And we are spending some time in these weeks between Mother's Day and Father's Day considering some truth that is really important for the success of our family life and all of our relationships. I want to read for you, starting in verse 25, we're going to actually consider verses 29 through 32 today. We've considered these earlier verses in a previous week, but I want to remind you, therefore putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Godly families, successful families are built on honesty and communication. 
Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Godly families are built on humility that works out into resolving problems. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Godly families are built on personal responsibility to work and to provide. Verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. We're going to learn today that godly families are built on a sensitivity in their communication. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Godly families are built on spirituality, a genuine spiritual life in the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Godly families are built on harmony, working together. Well, first of all, successful families are built on sensitivity, particularly in their communication. Now, sensitivity is one of those words that's gotten used and misused and you know men are supposed to be more sensitive kinder and gentler and you know i'm all for that (laughs) or not Um, but i am for a thoughtfulness of communication based on the word of god and that is a kind of sensitivity Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. One of the things I didn't even put in my notes, but is clearly implicit in this instruction is this, you can choose what you will say. There is no such thing as your mouth running on autopilot. Yes, you may have some very bad habits of communication, but that's exactly what what they are and they need to change. Communication, the the, the statement, the, the thing that this verse also teaches us is this. Communication is either hurtful or helpful. There's no middle ground here. Your communication is either corrupt or constructive. It is one or the other. And what's interesting is that hurtful communication is described like rotten food. It's described literally like rotten food. When we see the word corrupt today, we're often tempted to think of a corrupt politician. There have been some famous cases just here recently of some men who have been found to be taking money, you know, bribes and so on. And that is a corrupt thing, don't get me wrong. But this word here particularly is talking about something that is that is literally decaying, like if you set a piece of meat out and it's not refrigerated or cooked or whatever, it just grows mold after a while, and you would say, that is corrupt. That is what this word is talking about. Rotten food. This word was used in ancient times of rotten fruit, rotten vegetables, other spoiled fruit. When do you clean your refrigerator? Do you examine everything every day? Go through that vegetable drawer. You know that's where that bad stuff is. It's down in the bottom of that vegetable drawer. You, you buy a cucumber and you eat half of it, put it in the plastic bag that it came in, you stick it back down in there, and a week later you have a science project. 
You open the door and you think, something isn't right in my refrigerator because I don't eat things that smell like that. (laughs) And so you go on the search and destroy and you clean that thing out because you're not going to eat rotten vegetables, rotten food, you know, things, you know, leftovers that have more hair than your husband, you know, that kind of thing. Listen, folks, God says words can be like that. Your words are either like that, they're either like rotten food, or they are constructive. That is the the positive opposite. Helpful communication is described as constructive. And it is a word like we would use to refer to building a house. The, uh, the King James word is edify or edification. We get our word edifice from it. It means something that is built up. Helpful communication is described as constructive. And, and I, could, I could either describe rotten communication or I could describe constructive. I'd rather describe the constructive. So here it is. Constructive communication, first of all, is calm. It's calm. What do I mean? So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you are not calm when you speak, I can just about guarantee you what you're going to say is going to be rotten, not constructive. If you are not calm, you are not under the power of the Holy Spirit. You're under the power of your emotions, of your anger, or whatever it is that's pushing you. Constructive communication is calm, swift to hear. Oh man, I need that instruction. When I, when I had three kids in my home, three teenagers, I was often not swift to hear. I only need to hear about three words, and I know what they're going to say, and I know what needs to be done. Right, 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 right. My wife come along and say, all she had to do was look at me. <laughs> I hate it when I'm wrong, but I was wrong a lot because I was swift to speak. Communication that is godly is calm. When you are calm, you are able to be more thoughtful. Old, old saying that I heard many years ago. I heard it from a teenager, actually. He learned it from his dad. Let calmer heads prevail. Mom and dad, you need to be a calmer head. Husband and wife, you need to be a calmer head. Children, you need to be a calmer head. Just because you're a child doesn't mean you get to say whatever you want. You need to be calm when you speak to your parents so that you might speak respectfully. Helpful communication, which is constructive, is first of all calm. Secondly, it is compassionate. Compassionate. Look at Ephesians 4.29 again. Let no corrupt, no rotten word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification. And by the way, the reason I'm describing constructive edification also is this. When you look at that word rotten communication, you could be tempted to think of like cuss words, and obscene language, and certainly that, that God speaks against that in, in a number of places, but I do think here the primary thing he's talking about is are your words hurtful or helpful? 
And so he's using rottenness to describe unhelpful or hurtful communication because he defines it by going right away to something that is edifying. But in terms of compassion, look what he says. Necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. You could ask this question, is my speech grace-inducing? You are God's agent of grace. We often think about that in the church that, you know, I'm supposed to stand up here and teach the Word of God. God takes His Word and through that communicates to people. It's a grace movement, if you will. Or when we talk one-to-one or when Melanie Hively stands up here and shares her heart and afterwards some of you will come to her and say, you know, boy, thank you for sharing and there will be that communication. And we know it's supposed to be grace-inducing But when we get at home and we're talking about who has control of the remote, we're not concerned about grace. (laughs) That's the point at which we have to say, is my communication about to be rotten or constructive? And it needs to be at every other moment in our life because you have the opportunity of loving the people you are talking to. To be compassionate for someone is to say, what does this person need? That is an others-oriented kind of life. Second Peter, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The only way your communication can be described as gracious or grace-inducing is to say, is, are my words the kind of words that are in the Bible, the good kind of words, not the, you know, God does record some bad things for us too. Are my words God's kind of words? Is, am I about to speak the way Jesus would speak? Because if so, I am going to bring grace to the people who hear me. Godly sensitivity in communication means thinking like Christ before you talk so that what you say will truly be helpful to the people to whom you say it. That's going to necessitate that sometimes you don't talk at all. Because sometimes you just don't know what to say. And it would be wiser to say nothing and wait till God helps you to speak in a godly way. Well, godly families are built on a sensitivity of communication. Number two, godly families are built, and I'm going to skip down to verse 31 and then come back to verse 30, and you'll see why here in a minute. Successful families are built on on harmony. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 is the the put off, it's the negative, and then verse 32 is the put on. And if you remember, this passage is oriented that way. Stop this, start that. Put that off, put that on. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I've summarized verse 31 this way. All of those behaviors are self-centered. Now look at that verse. You probably don't normally think of those things as self-centered. You think of them maybe as hot-tempered. And that's true. But they're self-centered behaviors. Bitterness. The word bitterness means to cut or to pierce. 
words or thoughts or actions that, that hurt, that pierce, that poke, those are bitterness. Wrath. Wrath means a quick temper. In your NIV, it uses the word rage. And the word rage is all the rage today. We have road rage, and we have Costco rage, and we have, you know, oh yeah, when I was in Tukwila, parking lot's a little busier even than this one. And man, I, some, some guy kind of, he wasn't paying too much attention, or the lady who was walking wasn't, and he kind of pulled out a certain way and you know, made her mad. And she followed him in the store telling him what she thought. They had to call the police. Wrath. The, the Scripture uses several words, and you'll see that here. It uses several words for anger or that type of thing, and there's little fine distinctions. And that's this one. To be quick-tempered, to explode, to blow up. The next one on the list is anger. That's a more deliberate, the way this word is used in the New Testament is a more deliberate, settled, thoughtful kind of hate. Whereas the word wrath is a quick-tempered kind of hate. The word clamor. The clamor is the outward showing of anger, whether verbal or physical. In other words, you, you, can, be, you can be angry at least without really showing it. But then clamor is when you're just fussing and carrying on. And then evil speaking. It's literally the word blasphemy. We hear it in other parts of the New Testament translated that way. And the word blasphemy is not a special word that talks about God. It simply means purposefully hurtful or purposefully uh, derogatory communication. And, and, and there may be times when it's appropriate, if you're in a leadership position, you have to talk about somebody who's done something wrong. That's not blasphemy. That's not purposefully speaking evil it, it, it is a thoughtful thing it needs to be done but then there are times when we just we just we're just mad at people and we're just saying hateful things we're just letting her go and and that's what he's talking about in the paper this week coming to this idea of wrath here as an example one in 20 of us may have explosive rage disorder one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Rick. <laughs> Would you like to come forward and repent? <laughs> now, now get this: one in twenty Americans may be susceptible to uncontrolled anger attacks in which they lash out in road rage, spousal abuse, or other severe transgressions that are totally unjustified. Researchers from Harvard and the University of Chicago have found. Yeah, you know what, folks? A hundred percent of us have explosive rage disorder. That's because we all have a sin nature. And every single one of us will come to a point in our life where we are tempted to act that way. And the only difference will be is whether or not we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and say, God, this ain't right. Or if we choose to be very selfish in our behavior and go ahead and express ourselves. All of these descriptions. Now here's something I want you to understand. All of these behaviors are a description of somebody who has been wronged or a person who at least thinks they have been wronged. 
And I would encourage you, as you try to understand these words, to come back to verse 26. Be angry, but don't sin. If you are angry and sin, that's what it looks like. The source of these temptations may be very real, very legitimate, and need to be dealt with. When we are bitter, and when we act in a cutting or piercing manner, we have unresolved anger. There's a reason that you feel bad inside, and that is because something has made you angry. The problem is you're handling your anger in an ungodly way. When, you, when we allow ourselves to explosively express our anger, we are doing what makes us feel good at that moment about the anger-inducing situation. When we pack our hurt into a nice corner of our heart and we feed it and keep it warm, we are serving our own hurt feelings with bitterness. When we constantly are harping on our hurts, we're repeating them, the things that we have suffered and the trials we are enduring, we're trying to generate sympathy for ourselves. Oh, let me tell you about my hurts and troubles. Can you see how hard my life is? Now, we don't say it that way, do we? But that's what we're doing. When we purposefully speak insults or hurtful things of others who we believe have wronged us or who have actually wronged us, we are trying to make ourselves look good and to make them look like the evil spawn of the devil that they are. When we act on the basis of our hurts, our actions will be evil. Evil. Have you ever looked yourself in the mirror and saying, I'm being very evil today? Well, no. Because ultimately, all of these behaviors are very self-serving and you feel very good about what you're doing. The last one, evil on the list. Why don't we resolve our anger? I would, I would just give you four reasons that came to my mind this week. The first one is laziness. What do you mean laziness? Well, you know, if you sit down with the person who has angered you, that's going to take some effort, isn't it? And that's going to take some time. And there may be some struggle, and there may be some heartache and some tears. It may require some prayer. It may require some Bible study, huh? And you know what? It's just easier not to do anything about it. Sympathy. Why don't we resolve our anger? Sympathy. We like to be babied. We want people to come around and say, oh, you poor thing. You have been so wronged and so hurt. Man, that feels good. Oh, yeah. That's like a big old back rub. Yeah. But all it is is a pity party. Power. Why don't we resolve our anger? Because we like the power. If you have actually been wronged, not a, not a supposed wrong, but an actual wrong. Now you've got the power over the other person. You wronged me. You wicked thing. And you just, you, you just hold it there. Talk about sinners in the hands of an angry God. How about, how about sinners in the hands of an angry husband or wife, you know? And you know if you forgive, you have to let go of that. And now you don't have any more power. There's a fourth reason that we don't resolve our anger, and that's fear. We don't want to make a mess, and we know it's going to be, we, we know, we know, quote unquote, we think it's going to be a mess if we're going to resolve this thing. 
You know what the bottom line is here? The bottom line, unresolved anger is selfish behavior. It suits you better to hang on to it than it does to work it through, even though God has clearly explained how it can be done and should be done. And even though you will feel better when it's resolved, that is, if you're trying to live for God. And the only reason you would not do this is selfish behavior. And that's when we come to the next verse, verse 32. Self-centered behavior must be stopped. Others-oriented or others-focused behavior must be started. And verse 32 is full of behavior that is focused on others, not self. Be kind to one another. Kindness means to be nice. I know that's, that's a very simplistic thing. If you study the word kindness in the Scripture, in the New Testament, it's only used two or three times. One of them is, is in 1 Corinthians 13, where it says love is kind. And it just means to be nice. Do you know the difference between being nice and being mean? If you don't, ask somebody around you. They'll tell you. They'll say, do you, I'm going to do this. Do you think that's nice or mean? They'll tell you. You know the difference. Be nice to people. <laughs> What'd you learn in church yesterday, brother? Well, I learned we need to be nice to people. Wow, your pastor must be getting paid a ton of money there, brother. He really thought that one up, didn't he? <laughs> Wouldn't the world be a better place if we were just plain nicer? But it's an others-oriented behavior. And if somebody wrongs you, the choice to be nice like Jesus said in, in Matthew 5, 43 and following when he says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Pray for them. Say good things to them. That's what it means to be nice. Love your enemies. Love your brothers. Love the whole world. It's all in the Scripture. So who do you get to be mean to? Maybe the devil. Maybe the devil, okay? The devil, not the one sitting next to you. The devil. Be nice. The second word is tenderheartedness. In the NIV, it says compassion. It's literally the word in Greek for your internal organs. Now, there's a separate word for heart, the word cardia. We get cardiac from it. But it's the word for the internal organs. And the Greeks believed that the, your emotions were actually housed in your organs. And that's because, you know, when you get really nervous, you feel that in your stomach, or if you get really excited, you know, you feel things down in your, in your guts, and so they thought that's where the emotions resided. And so this word came out of that, tenderheartedness. And I've just put the phrase, understanding the human condition, the word brotherly love is kind of similar to this. We should love people because we understand the human condition. When somebody gets sick with a cold, we can all go, oh yeah, I hate that when I get a cold. We, can, we understand how that is. And so we can be compassionate based on our understanding of the human condition. The same thing should be true here. Have you ever made somebody mad? Well, if you say no, you're, you're a liar and you should go to verse 24. Or 25. And uh, here's the idea. If you can understand how it feels when you've done wrong, you need to be understanding like that to other people when they do wrong to you. Tenderheartedness. You ever look at somebody and say, man, that's a tough old bird. 
Well, what he's saying is, don't be like that. Be tenderhearted. Be, be compassionate toward people. And then the last word is, is the toughest of all. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Boy, Jesus gave us a parable that talks about forgiveness that will help us to understand this. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter said, I'm drawing a line in the sand at seven times. I can't take any more! You ever thought that? When you say that, that's just you. That's not God, you know. And Jesus said, I say to you, not up to, 70, not up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven now, was Jesus saying, keep score, because when you hit number 491, you can let her cut loose, brother. No. Obviously, he was saying infinitum. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I can't tell you exactly how much that is, but enough to say that is just a fortune, millions of dollars. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, all they had, and payment be made. Oh, did we skip a verse? Maybe not. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will repay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. He must have known what it's like to be in debt. And he released him, and he forgave the debt. He said, nah, don't even worry about it. Man, can you imagine how that guy would have skipped out of there that day? But it was a short lesson. But that servant, he went out, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. 100 denarii would be 100 days' wages, as compared with millions. And he laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet, and he begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Does that sound familiar? That's just what he said a minute ago. And he would not have compassion, but he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told the master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. So you should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That's what it means to forgive. You are the person with a million dollar debt to God. How many times have you sinned? It's an old illustration that we used to use in sharing the gospel. We'd say, well, let's say you're pretty good. You only sin three times a day. In a year, that's about a 1,000 sins. And I'm 50 years old. That means I've done 50,000 sins if we're going to give me grace and say only three times a day I sinned. And am I going to go to God and say, God, I've only sinned 50,000 times. You should let me into heaven even though I haven't believed in Jesus. And he's going to say, you wicked person. 
your sin by your own mouth, you're going to hell. The great news is, of course, that I don't have to beg for forgiveness. I go to him and I say, Jesus, be my Savior, and he wipes away those 50,000 sins. And then we see this illustration. He says, I forgave all your sin, and now you're going to go to your neighbor who sinned you once, twice, ten times. And you're going to say, no, I'm not going to forgive. You can't disrespect me like that. Forgive as God forgave you. Successful families are built on sympathy. Parents, your children are going to wrong you. They are going to wrong you and they are not going to confess their sin. I guarantee it. Maybe someday it'll happen. Your husband, your wife is going to wrong you. Little things, big things, medium things. It's going to happen. Are you going to be a forgiving person? Now again, this doesn't negate God's instruction to confront. We need to go to people when they wrong us. But the question is, what do you do when they say, I've done wrong? Now you're in a pickle. You've got to forgive. Are you willing to be a forgiving person? And are you willing to forgive all those little things that people just don't even know they've done? Successful families are built on sensitivity in their communication and sympathy in their actions. And then in verse 30, they're built on spirituality of life. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of instruction. This is a unique instruction for maintaining spiritual life. God uses several pictures in connection with the Holy Spirit to help us grasp what it means to be spiritual. This one says, don't grieve him. That's an interesting way to put it. Let me just put it very plainly. Don't make God sad. Don't make God sad. The simple truth is this. When you sin, the Holy Spirit is sad. Parents should be able to relate to this as you think about your children and as you see them make a a wrong choice, whether it's a small one or a large one, in your heart you may be angry, but you're also sad. You think, oh, I wish they didn't have to go through that. That's how God is. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have some other emotions and some other thoughts as well, but one of them is sadness. The Holy Spirit is grieved. And and another place we're told not to quench the Holy Spirit. Later in this passage, we're told to let Him control our life. There are different pictures. How do you keep from making the Holy Spirit sad? It's very simple. Live a righteous life. In some ways, I've chosen to, to see this verse as a bit of a summary of the truth that's been given up to this point. Um, th- up to this point, he has told us some sins to put off and some righteousness to put on, and he's going to give us more as this passage goes on, but it's sort of like he stopped right in the middle and says, you know, in these things I've just been talking about, corrupt communication, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, um, evil speaking, He says, you know, those things make the Holy Spirit sad. And then he says the constructive communication, the kindness, the compassion, the forgiveness, those things make God happy. 
These things grieve the Holy Spirit. These things bless God. Did you ever stop to think that God is blessed, that God is happy when you do righteousness? He's not up in heaven stone-faced, you know. Kind of like, well, it's about time. No, he's going, yeah, good job. He's happy. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, the scripture says the angels in heaven are rejoicing. It's a party every time somebody comes to faith in Christ. God is happy over righteousness. He is sad over sin. How do we take this truth and apply it in our lives? I think Romans 6, 12-13 is where you need to meditate this week. Therefore, do not let sin reign or control in your mortal body that you should obey its lust or strong desires. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now that you have heard this truth this week, just like a couple of weeks ago when I preached about lying from this previous verse, I heard more people talking about lying the next few days. <laughs> oh, can't say that. It's a lie. That is exactly what this verse says. You should be examining your actions and saying, no, I will not lie. Yes, I will, t- I will tell the truth. As you think about rotten communication or constructive communication, you should say, God, help me not to, to go down those same familiar paths of talking when I say those things that are hurtful, when I call people stupid, and I, and I tell them they'll never make it, and you can't do it, and help me to start talking in a godly way and, and speaking God's truth. Help me to present my members. The members he's talking about is the parts of your body, your mouth, your ears, your eyes, your hands. Present them to God to do righteousness. I have an acquaintance who hasn't been feeling that well and has been going to the doctor on and off and supposed to be on a restricted diet. And on the last call to the doctor, the nurse said, what did you have for breakfast this morning? (laughs) Biscuits and gravy. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know what, folks? God has given us clear instruction. It will help us succeed in life and in relationships. But we have got to live it. We've got to pick it up and do it. We've got to follow it, not make our own choices. Heavenly Father, help us to present ourselves to you for righteousness today. As soon as the service is over, as we start talking, as we start driving, as we go to dinner, help us to present ourselves to you for righteousness in what we say and in what we do. Father, build our families, improve our families as we build them on you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.